Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 48, which begins with Max arriving at the hospital, and it ends with Max leaving room 201. So yesterday, (laughs) we kind of got our last good look at Steve Bisley as Goose, and I said, oh hey, we never talked about Steve Bisley, the actor, in all the times that we've seen him running around as Goose. So before we get to Max walking briskly down a hallway as we begin this minute, let's uh, let's talk about a little bit of Steve Bisley here. So his top four on IMDb, <laughs> I know you love it when actors don't have <laughs> Mad Max as their number one thing, and this is exactly the case. His number one most recognized movie is The Great Gatsby from 2013. Yeah. I'm not sure that's... Like oh no, it's it's not like it's not like, the thing where everyone says, "Oh, Steve Bisley, you mean the guy from Great Gatsby?" No, it's just that, you know, that one made a lot of money. His number 2 is a TV show called Water Rats. The show itself ran from 1996 to 2001. He was kind of a guest star in the first couple of seasons and then became more of a regular character in the last four. He played uh, Detective Sergeant Jack Christie. Um, in in the number three spot is, of course, Mad Max in 1979, where he played Jim Goose, who we all know and love. And number four is a 2010 movie called Red Hill, where he played a character named Old Bill, which I love the rhyming scheme of that. I know it's not planned, but it just worked out well that way. <laughs> Um, I should note, and I didn't mention this when I listed it, The Great Gatsby, he played Dan Cody. That's his character name. So, Bisley has 64 actor credits on IMDb. He didn't really branch out into other things like directing or producing or anything like that. He just basically stuck to acting, because that's what he was really good at. He's been active since 1977, and he's still going. Very much Mel Gibson-esque in his career path. Nice. Um, he's been through two marriages. He has six kids. So he's been busy there. Um, what did he do before Mad Max? Before he started Mad Max, Steve Bisley attended the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Kensington, New South Wales with Mel Gibson. They were roommates. That's right. They were roommates. Um, and of course, they went on to star in movies together and kind of go on like that. I was wondering about the National Institute of Dramatic Art. And they have some notable alumni. So other people that have uh, gone to NIDA include Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Boz Lerman, who directed The Great Gatsby, um, <laughs> Hugo Weaving, and Sam Worthington also. Yes. <laughs> I We should clarify that you're laughing because I'm making faces because I can't stand The Great Gatsby. I just, it's a horrible, horrible story. And it just makes me cringe. <laughs> So when I learned that that he was in that, I'm like, oh, come on. Well, we actually, before recording this, we jumped on YouTube and I found a clip from The Great Gatsby. And of course, it's narrated by Tobey Maguire, arguably Mm. the most miscast Spider-Man of all time. But that's a whole other series. Uh, Steve Bisley is like a big character in Gatsby's life, but a small character in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't in it long enough for me to, like, recognize his face. Yeah. Like, I had to say, look, 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 there he is. And I didn't see it. Yeah. 
He's the, the drunk millionaire. As opposed to uh, Red Hill. <laughs> yes. So the 2010 movie Red Hill, he plays pretty much the sheriff of this town. Yeah, one of the main characters or maybe like a strong supporting character. Yeah. yeah, he's not the POV character, but he's kind of the the POV character's boss and probably a big source of exposition. Red Hill is one of those movies that I definitely want to put on the watch list. You can it, put it, it on the really list. Good. You you can put it on the list. It's not necessarily my kind of movie, but hey, this, mm-hmm. you know, that's fine. I mean, speaking of movies mm. that are not your kind of movie. <laughs> so I am willing to watch movies that are not my kind of movies, but this movie, oh I don't my know. God. So the year after Steve Bisley made Mad Max, he was in a movie called The Chain Reaction, and we watched a trailer for it. It was <laughs> my my biggest thing about this movie chain reaction is not its quality and it was of questionable quality but it was the it was 1980 so yeah. you know and it was a whatever. trailer from 1980 it was a trailer from 1980 so yeah what makes me not want to watch it was goo <laughs> there looked to be like people goo in the movie yeah like there was this one shot where okay. I I'm always gonna think of it as goose. Where Goose opens a car door and like a body falls out. Yeah. Which immediately made me think of this scene where Max pulls back the sheet and sees Goose. Mm-hmm. Made me think of that scene. Anyways, the body comes out of the car and it's like gooey. Yeah. I think it's like wrapped in plastic or something yes, like that. Yes. And it's really gross. Yeah. Not in a Laura Palmer artsy kind of wrapped in plastic, but more like shrink wrapped. Yes. Yeah. It's really gross looking. So... We and might... one of its taglines is something like, the ones who die are the lucky ones. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> so, I'm not sure. <sighs> I'm intrigued by it, you know? I want to watch it in the same way that I really want to watch the new Ghost in the Shell movie that's coming out. <laughs> like, I can look at it and be like, oh, that's probably not going to be good. But I want to watch it anyway. <laughs> You're not convincing me because I really don't want to see that movie either. I say, you weren't planning on seeing that movie. I've already written you off as a lost cause as far as that one. (laughs) So I'm not going to drag you to that. And we are not doing Ghost in the Shell as a hiatus movie. It is so off subject for the type of movie that we're watching here. Just not even going to worry about it. Not at all. Okay. So. Thank you. We mentioned a bit when we were talking about Red Hill, the idea that Steve Bisley is featured heavily in the movie, but he's not the lead. And that's kind of where he shines because he actually has two AFI awards for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, One from 1984's Silver City and another from 1990's The Big Steel. And while Steve Bisley has a lot of charisma to himself, I feel like at least in this movie, him playing second fiddle to Max is a huge strength, I believe, to this movie. It's strange that you say it that way, because I don't feel like he's playing second fiddle to Max. I feel like they each get their half of the movie, and the first half was for Goose, Mm -hmm. and the second half is for Max. Yeah, I feel like Goose brings us into the story. Like, he's a good character to latch on to, to really understand this world yes that we're in and it's through him that we understand max right because which you know because goose is in a way the character that makes us aware that max is a good guy that max is worth caring about because goose cares about him yes and it's the same thing with jesse you know we know max is worth loving because jesse loves max Mm -hmm. and so like max himself is not what's the word i'm looking for he's not he's not like a 
to use the Marvel movies as a reference, a Tony Stark or a Steve Rogers. Yes, I was thinking he, so far he is not Mr. Personality. And I think one of the big things about the Mad Max movies, and this is definitely going to come up in later minutes because it's a thing that we're going to bounce back on a lot, is the idea that Max isn't necessarily the most interesting person in a Mad Max movie. No. I feel like it's almost like when you're playing a video game, your character, the protagonist, can be, in some games, quite boring. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't talk. Sometimes you never get to see them. You never get to see what you look like. Because the job of the character of the protagonist is to bring you the viewer, the player, into the story. Mm -hmm. And so that you make it your own. Right. I kind of feel like that's what Max is for us. Yeah. And I mean, Max definitely gets the most characterization in this movie because we are getting introduced to the character of Max. But when you think about him in Road Warrior or in Beyond Thunderdome, he's surrounded by all of these colorful characters. And he's very reserved or stoic or single-mindedly focused on a material goal. You know, it's this movie where we actually get to learn what his big motivations are. Which in this movie, it's, you know, preserving his family. And when he loses that family, spoiler alert, I don't know, you should have watched the movie by now. Um, but when he loses that main motivation in life, that's where he goes mad. And I think losing Goose in this way... As we're going to see at the very end of today's minute, like he's already starting to have his different aspects of his life fall away. Yes, we, def we do see. We've commented before about how straight faced he is. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give away a lot in his facial expressions. We're going to see that start to change in this minute. Yeah. Because a lot of the great personality moments we've seen with Max are the direct result of him interacting with another person. Yes. I'm thinking specifically of when they were arresting Johnny. And you had Max and Goose and Johnny is sitting there on the floor ranting. And so that's the instance where Max calls back to Goose and say, Hey, do you remember that Code 3? And he's... It's a little bit of personality eking out. But every time he's on his own, like, we don't get any of it. It's very professional, very straight-laced. Like, during the opening chase, Goose had a ton of personality in the opening chase. All of the other officers had yes. amazing personality in the opening chase. And Max was the one who never saw his face. He was always, you know, putting on gear or putting things together. And, yeah, there was a lot of mystery building up around his character, but we didn't actually get to see that character. Which yes. is really what the second half of the movie is all about, I think. I agree. And we're kind of transitioning here. This is a major transition in the movie. Not only is it almost exactly halfway through the movie, but the movie takes a completely different turn at mm -hmm. this point. So getting back to the minute. To the minute. <laughs> we start off with Max walking briskly down the hallway. This is a direct tie-in to yesterday's episode where he showed up at the hospital. And as he's coming down the hallway, we can see all of the other officers just standing around and aside from the officers i think there's also uh, a doctor and a nurse in the hallway i didn't pay too much attention to them because they're yeah, just background I, actors i watched the nurse a little bit but it was very clear that she was told to stand here and and walk over there yeah and that's exactly what she did she was standing still she walked over to the other side mm -hmm. and that was it um, and then there was another man there who is wearing dark clothes. So at first I thought it was... Um, like Sars or Scuttle? Yes. One of the other officers? But then when you get close up to him, you can tell. You can see his face clearly enough that it's not him. He's not wearing an MFP uniform. So And Fifi was 
like facing him as if they had been talking. Yeah. That's so, why I think he's a doctor. You like think a so? hospital guy. Well, because we see doctors in further in scenes later on. Yeah. And they're wearing like typical doctor gear. That's true. That's true. Lab coats or scrubs or say. stuff like that. So I I think he was just another person in Goose's life yeah. who got the call that they needed to come down to the hospital. Hmm. We also see that Charlie is holding on to Goose's helmet. Yeah. You know, and it's the, funny, the I missed that the first couple of times through. The helmet didn't look damaged at all. I wonder if maybe it was in the back of the truck rather than the cab of the truck. Well, it was definitely in the back of the truck. And it was definitely flown. Yeah. It was definitely thrown clear during the crash. Yes. Because Goose probably would have hung it up somewhere on the motorcycle and therefore, you know, thrown clear in the roll. Yeah. Um, I do find it interesting that they were able to recover that, that it wasn't flung so far afield <laughs> that it was lost. Yes. I do like that it came to the hospital with him like it was a personal effect. Yeah. Because for Goose, it was a personal effect. And I mean, Charlie probably felt that just having that helmet there would help in some way. Yeah. So that if Goose woke up, it was Charlie could be like, hey, I got I got this thing of yours that you always have. Right. Hey, I found your helmet. Yeah. Here it is. Of course, he would have been like, hey, I found your helmet. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That was pretty close. So as Max is walking down the hallway, his concern seems to be growing. Oh, absolutely. You get the idea that he wasn't told why he should go to the hospital necessarily. Mm-hmm. But the fact that everybody else is there. Yeah, and the looks on their faces, mm-hmm. he's reading the room, and by the time he gets down to the end, he's practically running. Yeah, and so Fifi tries to intercept him. Like, he calls out his name a couple of times, and he stops him. And <laughs> He's an interceptor? <laughs> yeah, he's intercepting. Um, there is a little sign on that door, a little green sign that says no entry, which kind of tells me that the reason everybody was standing out in the hallway is because they weren't allowed in the room. So well, it makes sense that Fifi would stop Max because it's like, Max, you can't go in there. You're not supposed to go in there. You're not supposed to go in. Yeah. Actually, the first time you told me that, I didn't see that sign for myself. Mm-hmm. So the first time you mentioned that to me, I figured it was probably just part of the hospital where they were shooting and they were just probably just using a storage room that, you know, is supposed to be off limits or something. Mm-hmm. But then it occurred to me that if it's a burn unit, burn victims usually die less of the burn itself and more of the infection that they get from all of their entire skin being now an open wound. Right. Uh, So it would have been, it would have needed to be like a very sanitary and sterile room. So that makes sense. Yeah. But it's not just a storage room. But Max is not going to listen. Max is going to power his way through. And so he kind of bursts open through the door and he stops in the doorway once the door is open. And we see from his perspective that the room is really sparse. Like it's a large room, tiny bed. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of bumped up against that because... You know, you and I both have seen hospital rooms and spent time in hospital rooms, and they're actually pretty crowded. Yeah, way more crowded than we see here, which kind of lends credence to the whole, this used to be a storage closet, and they just dressed it as a hospital room. Right, by putting, like, a cot in there. Yeah, yeah, kind of... And there's no... You can hear a ventilator going, Mm -hmm. but there's no monitoring equipment. Yep. And I know this is, you know, 1976, so... They may have had less equipment to monitor a patient with than we would have now, but they would have been like monitoring his heart rate and his oxygen levels and his, I don't know, other things that they monitor when you're not in the hospital. (laughs) 
Yeah, it, it's just very Spartan. Yes. And I guess you could kind of say, of course, the hospitals would be under-equipped because it's, you know, resources are getting more scarce and things are going downhill in general. Um, yeah, but... But at the same time... I feel like there would have been more beds in there. Yeah. Like, at a room that size with beds that size, they could have fit, like, four beds in there at least. Yeah, yeah. And that bed was really small. It was, yeah. You could definitely tell that it was not... It was very narrow. It was not your your typical large hospital bed yeah absolutely not but it kind of makes me wonder okay max barges into this room and this is all he sees like what did he expect like obviously he wasn't told exactly what happened to goose yeah fifi trying to stop max i read it as he wanted to prepare him for what he was going to see he didn't want him to just barge in there and see it for himself and the shock of that especially knowing how close they are that he wanted to warn him yeah. And that that warning was something that should be done in person, not over the radio. Saying, hey, get down here. He's have massive burns all over his body. Something that should have happened in person in the hospital before he went in to see Goose. Yeah. But Max didn't give Fifi that chance. Yeah, he really didn't. Really didn't. Yeah. So Max is standing there in the doorway and Fifi has his hands on his shoulders as if he's going to like try and lead Max out. But Max just shakes him off and mm-hmm. steps inside. Yes. I like the the music stops dramatically when the door opens. Oh yeah, and Max stops. So does the music, and I, I really liked the timing there. Absolutely, the the music dropping off in the room it definitely just gave the scene an eerie feeling. The idea that it's replacing Goose and all that Goose was with just these very mechanical sounding ventilator and uh, something is bubbling and whatever. Yeah, it's just. It's very surreal. Yes. And so as Max steps into the room, the door closes behind him and all we're left with is these mechanical sounds. And then they wreck the entire scene. By adding all of this leather sound. Yes. Just constant squeaking and stretching and just... Mm Mm-hmm. It would have been so much better if it was just footsteps. Yes. You can hear his footsteps. And so I was able to appreciate... The sound of the ventilator and the machines and whatnot and the sound of Max's footsteps in the silence. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been very affecting. Yeah. And then you throw the leather noises in there. Like this is not the first time in this movie that we've been distracted by leather noise. Mm -hmm. Like it happened after the nightclub scene. It's happening again here. I don't know who on the sound staff was obsessed with leather. It just occurred to me that we we commented the last time in the bedroom after the one night stand that they had to make a conscious choice yeah, to put those leather noises in there. And we're like, why did they do that? It occurs to me, and I'm just speaking off the cuff, that the the sounds are coming from their MFP uniforms. Mm-hmm. And so the MFP is interjecting itself even into moments where they don't belong. Oh, yeah, that's going back the to MFP the whole... The MFP did not belong in that bedroom. Yeah. But but they were there anyways because Goose was on duty. Mm-hmm. That's where the evidence points, at least. And then now, between two friends, one of them dying, the MFP don't belong there. But they're there anyways because it's through the MFP that this happened. I love that idea because in the past, we've always applied it to the radio. But yes. here, it's even the uniform that is so pervasive. Yes, That it takes over these, like, this is an incredibly personal point between two friends where one is, you know, clinging to life and the other one is learning about this horrific thing that happened to his best friend. So 
<laughs> Max, covered head to toe in the noisiest leather ever made by man. Well, the noisiest vinyl. Yeah. Well, maybe... <laughs> At least when it was Goose's leather, it was actual leather. Maybe that's why they added so much 80-yard leather noise is because right. they wanted people to think, Convincing oh, well, that's not vinyl. That's got to be leather because it's so dang <laughs> loud. Sounds like leather. Okay. Oh, my God. Just... I want to go back in time and find the the Foley session where they've got a piece of leather and they're just rubbing it up against each other pieces of leather and be like, guys, 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 dial it back. Yeah. Dial it back. <laughs> so Max approaches Goose mm-hmm. and he's completely covered by a blanket, more like a sheet, yeah. over a frame so that it's covering him, but it's not touching him. Right. Because uh, like we said before, you know, these third degree burns, it's basically an open sore over the entire area. Uh, there's also a blue light shining on him. And at first I thought that was just mood lighting, but I decided to look it up and I found this great article from pulling it up in front of me. Now I'm assuming it's not a Kmart type of thing, right? The Kmart blue light special? No, but that's the name of the article. <laughs> article is blue light special there we go but it's a serious article okay. it's from um it's from massachusetts general hospital which funny enough is you know the biggest and best hospital in our area yup and it their newsletter is called proto it's the name of their newsletter and it talks about blue light and how it has an ability to kill bacteria really Yes, and we've known this for a long time. We've used different types of light to kill bacteria and other organisms for quite some time. Uh, The first instance that they note in this article is in 1903 when, I'm going to butcher his name because it's, I'm going to butcher his name, so I apologize. Um, Nels Ryberg Finsen from Denmark, received a Nobel Prize for his work in light therapy. Uh, He developed a Finsen lamp, which I believe is ultraviolet light, uh, has the ability to kill bacteria and whatnot. So there's been lots of new research on the great thing about blue light is that organisms don't become accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. Like antibiotics, the, the bacteria just develop an immunity to the antibiotics and we have to keep changing the antibiotics. That's not true for blue light. They never, the studies have shown that the bacteria never adjust to it. Hmm. So it really has, it has some really interesting potential specific for burn victims because also blue light, it can't penetrate all that deep into skin. So it's really best for surface injuries, wounds, which is perfect for burn victims. Okay. So that's why there was blue light. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, What I noticed about this light in particular is that, and it might not be this light specifically, but you can kind of see the silhouetted outline of Goose's body underneath the sheet. Yes. And you noted that one of his legs was like... One of his knees is bent. Yeah. Like he's... I don't know, like when when you're laying in bed... And you've like got your tablet or your computer up on your knees, so your knees are bent up. Mm-hmm. That's what it looked like, and that's not really a comfortable position. So that to stay in. So that was his right leg. That was the leg that. Let's see. Right. I think leg it's burned into that position. Of him hanging upside down. I thought of that too. I'm pretty sure that bent leg is bent that way because that's the leg that was trapped. You know, yeah. when the Ute was and upside down, it was like jammed in a certain way. I think. Yeah, and, and so the when he leather burned, would have burned like onto his skin. Yeah, 
And if it was burned in a certain position, it's probably more comfortable to leave it in that position rather than try and straighten it out. Yeah. Especially when the question of his survival isn't really a question. Everyone's pretty much there to say goodbye. Yeah. Which they're not even doing because they're not even in the room. But it's pretty clear that he is dying. There isn't really much hope. Yeah, he's pretty gnarled. Yeah. And uh, we see that firsthand as Max steps forward. He kind of reaches out for the hospital bed and there's some shifting that happens and like this awful, gaunt, bent, blackened, really gross looking hand falls out of the bed. And it and it surprises Max a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think it startles him a lot. Yeah. He doesn't seem too affected by the condition of the hand. More startled that such a thing jumped out at him. Yeah, because everything in this room is very still, very sterile. Mm-hmm. Nothing's really moving. And so the fact that this thing just kind of fell out, like he's taken aback at it. Yeah. And we get... Okay, so the way they do this. So Max approaches the hospital bed. He stops at the side of the bed. He reaches towards the shadows. One of the hands shifts and drops. Max is surprised by the sudden movement and looks down. We see the hand for like not even a full second. And so then Max steps backwards and then we get a long look at that hand. Which you may look at that and say, huh, that's an interesting looking hand for a man of Steve Bisley's size and build. And you would be right. (laughs) Because IMDB trivia, the burned hand that falls into view is just... The made-up hand of Sheila Florence, who we're going to meet later on in the movie as Mae Swayze. I like that they used an older female hand to represent a young male hand. It really gave you the sense of how much damage was done. Yeah, real disfiguring damage. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the makeup job that they did on this hand, it looks so close to an actual burn victim because of all of the hospital work. That George Miller did. Yes. Like he saw Burns firsthand. So he'd be able to sit there and approve or disprove all of the makeup jobs that they did. And it's probably a good thing that we only see the hand because doing a full burn makeup would have been very expensive. Yes. And I really don't think that's anything we need to see. I mean, not only a burn victim, but again, he was wearing a full set of leather and that would have burned onto him. Yeah. Very, very gruesome. Rough. Which is exactly what Max sees. Yeah. So Max, curious fella that he is, reaches up to pull the covering back so he can peek underneath it. I think... I think him looking, even though he he knows what to expect, he, he got the sneak peek of the hand. I think it's a mark of friendship. He he was emotionally attached to Goose. Mm-hmm. He needs to see him. I think it's similar to Wakes, yeah. where a loved one who has passed is presented and people get to see that person to say goodbye. Mm. And not every Wake is, you know, open casket. Many, many have closed casket, especially when there's injuries. Yeah. The, um, they, you know, they like to present them at their best. And when, when they can't, closed casket. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's the same sentiment. Max, yeah. he needs to see Goose. Yeah. And I get, and you get the sense that Max would have been better off not looking. Yes. Because he pulls back the sheet and we're very much focused on his face as he's pulling back this sheet and before we get into his reaction i just have to ask like what did he expect to see did he expect to see like the rest of goose perfectly fine and he just has this one messed up hand it's like he can see the bed 
He can hear the ventilator going. He can see the contraption. It's like, did he expect Goose to just be under there, find his rain, and just be like, oh, hey, just a healthy f- prank between friends. Here's a piece of cake. Piece like, of cake? I, um, I, don't know. I think I had lots of thoughts about this particular moment, but I think what I've settled on is that he is already starting the grieving process. Hmm. So he's in denial. He's in denial. And so he probably didn't have thoughts on what he was going to see. Yeah. But in his state of denial, it can't be as bad as the hand. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, And, you know. And a few seconds from now, in Max's time, a few seconds from now, we see him very clearly in denial. Oh, yeah. So I think he started that journey even before he saw Goose and... Had it visually and personally confirmed that Goose is going to die. Yeah, and this visual that he sees is a huge impact on him because we get this, this is going to sound really dumb, we get a dramatic ripple fade. (laughs) I, oh my gosh, I don't get it. So we don't get this cut. So the idea is we go from the shot of him pulling the the sheet back to a super close-up of him reacting to what he sees and it's like what drives me nuts is that there's something in between there they do a zoom yeah it's like a it's like a ripple and then a zoom to like oh it's okay no no no, no. they do a zoom first it's a it's short and it's kind of sweeps up a little bit yeah and we get like half of a close-up and then they do the wavy ripple thing moving the camera like Two inches forward. Yeah. I'm of the opinion (laughs) that it would have been better served if they just did a straight cut or... A zoom. I liked the zoom. A straight zoom. Just continued that zoom up and just had him do a consistent... Well, maybe not consistent, but like an expression that turned from curiosity to horror. Because we eventually end on an expression of, oh my god, what am I looking at? I wonder if that was added in after, if they didn't get the shot that they wanted and they added it in later. That's entirely possible. Because and very plausible. After after the ripple effect and they zoom in further on Max's face, you see nothing else. Yeah. You you don't really see what's behind him. It's just his face. That could have been shot at any time. You very don't even true. see like the sheet in his hands. That could have been done at any time and edited in. Okay. Well, from a filmmaking standpoint, I can understand it, technically yeah. speaking. But just the final product, I just not a huge fan of it. You know, because yeah. that ripple effect is pretty much reserved for like going into a dream sequence. And it's like, what? Well, maybe, maybe it's trying to communicate the surreal moment for Max. It is definitely a surreal moment for Max. Because you're right. It's, it's a dream. It's a thing you go... Bleh, 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 bleh. That's exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. So... I, maybe we're going into a surreal moment for Max. Yeah. Although I have to say I do like the close-up because it brings us right up to Max's face. But you know you're supposed to be looking at his eyes because mm-hmm. he's Mel Gibson. So where else are you supposed to look? He's got great eyes. He's got beautiful eyes. And so you just get a really beautiful shot. Mm. Yeah. Wide-eyed. Yes. So we go from looking at him really close up to the door to the room which is where you can very clearly see the room number. It's room 201. It says no entry. But the room flies open and Max like pours out. And then he just kind of like sits there. He's like out of breath a little bit. Against the wall. Yeah. And he's yeah, he's very he's visibly shaken. Visibly shaken. So that brings us to the end of this minute. This yes. horrifying firsthand viewing of what's left of Goose. And Max is just taken aback and aghast. And so we're going to see... How he reacts to this tomorrow. Uh, So yeah, come back for that. Yes. 
In the meantime, our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash madmaxminute. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 48. We will see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and men are men. 